Amen. Aren't you thankful for God, our rock, and that we indeed can hide ourselves in Him as we face the challenges of life? If you want to open to Psalm 61, it's where we'll be for our study in God's Word today. And I probably don't have to work very hard to persuade you that you have felt like David feels in Psalm 61 when he says, My heart is overwhelmed. The word overwhelmed means faint. It means weak. It means troubled. It's facing a challenge that's beyond what I feel equipped to handle. And the reality of life is that we face these kinds of things all the time. May be that you're facing a decision that is just beyond what you understand, and you've you've tried to study all the details and the pros and cons, and but you look to this challenge that faces you and you don't know what is right or what is best. Maybe you're overwhelmed by a situation with your health. Maybe you face a decision there or you've received news recently about what's going on with your health and you don't know exactly where this is going to go or how it's going to end or what the right thing to do for you would be. Maybe you face a challenge in your family or another close relationship and it's become complicated and murky and even communication has become difficult and you don't know exactly where to go with this or how it's going to be resolved. Maybe you face a financial burden. I don't know what challenge you face, but the reality is we are frequently overwhelmed with the troubles of life. And so as we come to Psalm 61, my desire for you today is is with David to lift your eyes and to look to the rock that is higher than you. The Lord Jesus is, of course, our rock, and God, through Christ, has shown us in His Word how He is solid and immovable and unchanging, and He is our safe place. And so, friend, when when your heart is overwhelmed, look to the rock that is higher than you. This is what David does. He cries out to God and says, God, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The question is, what was David facing when he said these words? What was David going through? And the answer is, we don't totally know. Many of the Psalms give us in in the title some bit of information about what David was facing when he writes these words. But if you'll notice in Psalm 61, our title is very brief. To the chief musician, on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. So we knew David intended this psalm for worship, and he wanted it to be accompanied with a stringed instrument. I hope the piano counts today. But beyond that, we don't know exactly what David was facing, and I I think that's understandable. There could have been any number of scenarios in David's life when he felt overwhelmed when his heart was weak because of the things happening to him and the things going on in his life. He feels overwhelmed and down and weak, and he lifts his eyes to the Lord, and he cries out for help. 
So let's track with David as he turns to the Lord in Psalm 61 and see how you and I as well can look to the rock that is higher than we are. How can we do that? How do we look to this rock in our time of trouble? Well, as we see, uh, number one, we can cry out to him because his protection is near. In the first couple of verses, verses 1 and 2, we learn a little bit more about what David is feeling. He begins by crying out to God, and the words here are strong. Hear my cry, O God. He's, he's sort of wailing to God. Attend to my prayer. The word for prayer is prayer, but it means a strong request. So David wants the Lord not just to hear him. David knows the Lord hears, but to answer, to do something about what he is facing. Verse 2 shows us a little bit more about what he's feeling. He says, from the end of the earth, I will cry to you. Now, we know the earth is round. I think David understood that too. There's no actual end to the earth and so we know David is talking about how he feels here. He's not you know, literally on the edge of a flat earth. He's speaking that he's far from God. He feels distant from the land. He feels so far, it's as if he's at the ends of the earth. And so he feels distant from God. He feels far away. And this is when he cries out to God, when he feels distant from God, when he feels overwhelmed by his circumstances, he asks God to lead him to the rock. And that's a beautiful word picture for us. You can imagine David, you know, down at the base of maybe some cliff or something like that. And we don't know what was going on, but some kind of trouble is approaching him. Maybe an animal of some kind or a flood of waters is approaching him. And there's David at the edge of this cliff looking to that safe place up high. And he calls upon God, Lord, lead me to that rock up there so I can get up and out and away from my trouble. (laughs) Throw down a rope so I can climb and get up to that safe place up above that I see. Now, it may be that David was thinking literally of God when he said rock here. David in other places in the Psalms does call God his rock. And so that may be what David had in mind. But what it represents is a place of safety, a place of resolution, a place of protection away from the harm that he is experiencing. What it also reminds us is that even though David feels as if he's at the ends of the earth and far from God, he says to God, lead me to the rock. Which means that even though David knows and feels far from God, he knows that God is near and is able to lead him to that rock. See, and so this is the beautiful transition that David helps us to catch. Even though he feels overwhelmed and distant from God, he knows that God is near. And that's why he cries out to God and asks for God, I know you're close. Now lead me to your safe place. I'm in trouble. I feel far from you, but I need your help. Lead me to your safe place. David Believing that God's protection is near, even though he feels far, cries out to God and asks for help. And this is helpful for us as well, because there are times that we feel like God is far, but in those times we must remember that He is near. 
and cry out to Him for help. Call to Him because His protection is near. Have you ever been in a situation where the resolution to a problem was just right in front of your eyes? You know, maybe you're, you know, talking on the phone and trying to find your glasses or whatever, and they're, they're on your head. Or maybe even talking on the phone trying to find your phone. Have you ever done that before? Yeah, I've been there. The solution is, you know, right in front of you. It's right close by. You just don't see it. Carrie and I experienced that recently on our uh, vacation. We were in Yosemite National Park having a great time, and they have these shuttle buses that take you from stop to stop, and it runs basically a big loop around the, the valley there. And so you can get off at different stops and do different hikes and so forth. And so we were taking one of these buses to our desired stop so we could do a hike. And it was a crowded bus. It was standing room only, so we were standing there pretty close to another family of four. And I just so happened to observe that the, the wife had her map out and, you know, she was trying to trace along where their stop was and she kept kind of nudging to the husband that's here and he, he looked like he'd just had enough. He was tired and exhausted and it was kind of like, ugh, I, you know, he, they weren't saying much to each other until they did speak and I heard that it was French. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And so I began kind of leaning in closer to the family and noticing what was happening here. And they were sort of arguing about which stop was the right stop and when they were going to get off. And so I finally offered, Can I, do you need help? Can I help you guys? And uh, in, in, in English, but with a heavy French accent, the, the wife kind of looked up and said, yes, please. You know, and, okay, well, what can I do for you? She's like, well, we're, we're looking for this stop. We, we've gone around six times. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm so sorry. No wonder you're frustrated. That would be frustrating. And so they had been taking the shuttle around the valley loop six times looking for their stop, looking to get off at the right place. And I said, okay, well, what, what trail are you looking for? And so I looked at the map and said, oh, actually, it's just two stops ahead. Okay, so listen for this number and you'll get off here. We were getting off at a different stop, unfortunately, but uh, we, we got off. We said, okay, two more stops and then you get off and you should be good. And they're, okay, thank you. You know, they had passed it six times already. So close. <laughs> But with a little bit of direction on the map, they were able to find it. We think. We actually don't know. Um, we never saw them again, so hopefully they're not still on the shuttle. Maybe you've been in a situation where the solution was close, though you felt like it was so far away. Sometimes we feel this way with God. We feel distant from Him. It's important that we look past those feelings that he's far away, and remember his promises that he is near. You see, in Jesus, God is always near. Maybe you've never come to the Lord for salvation. You've never been forgiven of your sins, and so you look at your life and the things that you've done and this message about a holy God who must punish sin, and you feel as if God must be so far from you, and there's no way you could cry out to Him for salvation. God puts things differently. He says in Psalm 145, verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon Him. 
Or Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, which says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him. And to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done where you feel like you are in relation to God, if you're ready to call out to Him today, then He is near. He's ready to hear your cry for mercy. He's ready to forgive you for all your sins. And if you'll trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you and rose again, He's ready to make you His child, to give you His righteousness and to put you at peace with Him forevermore. Would you call on the Lord while He is near? Believer, if you've trusted in Christ and you are God's child, there are yet times where we feel distant from the Lord, and yet we must remember that He has promised He is always near. Romans 8, 11 reminds us of the Spirit's indwelling. It says this, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. God is always near. In fact, if you've trusted in Christ, He's in you, always present. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says this, For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So I encourage you to cry out to God in prayer because He is always near. Always. You may feel far from Him because of your sin. Remember, You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He brings you into the very holy place of God so you may ask God for help with boldness in your time of need. You may feel far from God because it's been so long. You've wandered from Him and you've not talked to Him for years, maybe. That doesn't change what the blood of Christ has accomplished for you. He is still near. You may feel far from God because of your circumstances. You feel like God has abandoned you. You may be even upset with God over the things He's allowed in your life. Friend, remember the gospel. He gave His Son for you. Nothing can stop His love for you. So pour out your heart to Him. He is near. When your heart is overwhelmed, you may feel as if you cannot pray. Simply ask the Lord for help. In fact, the words of Psalm 61 become a wonderful reminder to us just just to say what David said. Lord, lead me to the rock that is higher than I am. Lord, help me. I don't know what you're facing today, but I encourage you. His protection is near. He hasn't gone anywhere. Cry out to Him. As David continues in Psalm 61, verses 3 and 4 give us now the reason that David looks to God. David, in verse 3, looks back to what has happened in the past. He says, You have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. And so then in verse 4, David talks about what he wants. 
Now, the New King James translates this, I will abide in your tabernacle forever, as if David is predicting the future. Think of the word will as a strong desire. You could read this as David saying, I am resolved to abide in your tabernacle. David is going to draw near to God, stay close to the Lord. And he does this because he remembers back to the way God has been in the past. He remembers what God's character is like. God has always been a shelter. He's always been a strong tower. And so number two today, we draw near to him because his presence is safe. David remembers the Lord is a shelter. The Lord is a strong tower. And so he says, I will draw near to you. I will dwell in your tabernacle. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. David looks to a couple aspects of God's character here. First, he looks back to the fact that God is a shelter, a safe place, a refuge. And God has been this for him in the past. He's also a strong tower. This is a high place protected from the enemy below. In verse 4, David says that he longs to dwell in God's tabernacle. The tabernacle was the location of God's presence in Israel. And so David wanted to abide there, to dwell there, to be as close to God as possible. He wanted to draw near to the safe place under the shadow of God's wings. Of course, this is a word picture. God doesn't have wings, but this shelter under his wings is a beautiful picture of the way a mother bird might protect her young. And so to God, drawing us in, drawing us close, shelters us under his strong and powerful wings. So David wanted to be close to that protection of God. He knew God's presence was safe. If you've ever been in a scenario where you were afraid, we do often want to get up and away from the trouble. Maybe you've been in a scenario like I have. I walked into a room one time and saw a woman up on a table, screaming and sort of lifting her feet. What in the world are you doing? There's a mouse. (laughs) Up on the table, up and away from the safety, right? Get away from the trouble, Birds often do try to build their nests in safe places, however, not always successfully. Maybe you found a bird's nest in a not-so-safe place. Here are a few examples uh, that I have seen before. A bird's nest on a windshield wiper, right? Well, that's not going to last long, is it? Uh, A a bird's nest in the exhaust pipe of a vehicle, that's not going to last long, is it? A bird's nest on a truck tire. Yeah, that's not going to go well unless the truck is broken down. And even a bird's nest inside a car engine, right? That's not going to last long either. Those things get pretty hot in there. Sometimes birds think they're in a safe place for their nest, but it is not safe at all. But with the Lord, His presence is always safe. So we draw near to Him because His presence is safe. Sadly, so often in our trouble, we turn away from Him. We don't like our circumstances, so we stop spending time with Him in His Word. We feel distant from God, and so we stop praying. We're discontent with our situation, and so we close our hearts to Him. Of course, these responses are 
wrong. We think we're helping ourselves out, but we're building our nest in that unsafe location instead. What David reminds us to do here is draw near to God. This is where we need to be in our time of trouble. And that begins by remembering what he's like. He is safe. He is a refuge. He is a fortress. He is our rock and our strong tower. Sometimes we think of safety as the absence of pain or injury. But that's really not the case. Safety is instead the protection God gives from evil. And that's exactly what we have in Christ. We are promised in Christ that no evil will befall us. The enemy cannot harm us. That does not mean, however, that our lives will be without pain or hardship. We may experience persecution. We may experience the results of the fall, death and health trouble and tragedy. I just read in the book of Acts about Stephen's martyrdom. He was a man who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit and had just been chosen to serve in the early church. And he, he's preaching salvation in Christ and then he's stoned to death. And we ask, well, how is that God keeping Stephen safe? How is that God protecting Stephen and being his rock through a trouble like that? Well, we have to remember that there are times that God allows evil through his loving hands for our good. We must remember that Stephen's life was not cut short by those who stoned him. Stephen lived the exact number of days God wanted Stephen to live on the earth. And God, by allowing Stephen to die through martyrdom, increased his eternal rewards. And God, even in Stephen's last moment, opened the heavens and allowed Stephen to see the joy that awaited him there before God's throne. And even if we think of Stephen's perspective, was he upset? That this was happening in his life? No, in his last moments, he cried for the forgiveness of those stoning him. You see, God's protection is not the absence of hardship. It's the absence of the power of evil to do anything to harm us outside of God's goodness to us and love to us. Evil cannot just befall us randomly. No, it always passes through the loving and good plan of God. And God's good plan is eternal, meaning even if our lives end, it hasn't thwarted God's good plan for us. We are kept by Him forevermore. And there will be a time when in each of our lives God chooses that our days on this earth will be done either by death or by being called to the air to be with Him forevermore. Nothing can change that date. God holds you. In his hands. God always does what is best for us. And as his children, he always protects us from evil. So draw near. Make a conscious effort to move toward God. He is already near. Now you move toward him. Take refuge in him. Trust him. He is safe. He is your father. Drawing near to God means filling your life with those things that remind you of Him and help you to grow in your affection for Him, spending time in His presence and talking with Him and thinking of Him and worshiping Him. And that idea of worship leads us to the final section now of 
Psalm 61. In verses 5 through 8, David, I think, begins to talk about the promises of God and his response of worship. Let me just give you a brief overview. Notice in verse 5, you see the word vow or vows. Notice again in verse 8, it ends with that same kind of phrase, that I may daily perform my vows. Vows were promises to God in response to God's character and what God had done. A worshiper would would see God's salvation or God's help or God's character and respond to God with some kind of vow of worship. I will praise you. David speaks this way many times in the Psalms. So, That vow is a a promise to worship God in light of what God had done. And wedged in between those two bookends of David's promise are reminders of God's promises. You'll notice in verse 5, David talks about his heritage, his inheritance, his promised inheritance. In verses 6 and 7, David remembers the promises about the king in his line, the Davidic king that would reign forever. And so David is remembering the promises of God and responding with worship. And so this is our third point for today. As we think about looking to the rock that is higher than us, we do that by worshiping him because his promises are sure. In that time when David felt overwhelmed, it was helpful to him to remember God's promises, promises that had not changed, promises that were sure. And David was able to say to the Lord, I will worship you because your promises will prevail. So what were these promises? Well, in verse 5, David talks about the fact that God has heard his own promises to God. And then he says, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Those who fear your name is is a summary way to describe God's people. Those who trust in the Lord and live for him. And so there's this heritage, there's this inheritance, something promised to God's people. And I think David probably has in mind the inheritance promised to Israel in the land, all the way back to Abraham, that God's people would dwell in the land and that they they would thrive and they would experience joy. If you'd like an example of a reminder of that promise, Psalm 37 talks about it, just a few pages back. And in Psalm 37, verses 9 and 11, we get a sense of these promises. Verse 9, David says, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And again, verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So David looked forward to a time when God would rule through the Messiah and there would be peace and prosperity in the land. This is his heritage, his inheritance. David continues in verses 6 and 7, and here he moves to the promises of one who would reign from the Davidic throne. He would have a descendant who would rule in this kingdom. God had promised this to David. In one example is 2 Samuel. Let me just read that promise there, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 16, or 15 and 16. 
God is speaking here. He says this, But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house, speaking to David, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that promise is repeated to David in a few other places, but it's a reminder, God had promised to David that somebody from his line, from his house, would reign forever. And in fact, Israel looked for this king from the time of David onward. Was it going to be Solomon? Nope, not going to be Solomon. That fell apart. And then we have the divided kingdom. Was it going to be any one of those kings? Nope, king after king failed and died. What was hope lost entirely? When the nations, both the north and the south, were defeated and taken away into captivity? No, Israel kept looking for their king. Would he come? Would he come? Would he come? And then Jesus came. But in his first coming, he came not to reign, but to save his subjects. In his second coming, he comes to reign. Indeed, there is a king. There is a king of David's line who will come to reign and rule on the Davidic throne over Israel and there will be peace in the land and all God's promises will be kept. He is keeping these promises. And so David in verses 6 and 7 looks forward to this Messiah. You will prolong the king's life, his years as many generations, he shall abide before God forever. Oh, send forth or or prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. So David calls upon the mercy, the steadfast love of God, and the truth, the faithfulness of God to keep his promises through the Messiah. David is banking on what's going to come, and it may be that the trouble he was facing had to do with his own time as king or his own rule over Israel, but he looks forward to that king who would abide before God forever, Jesus, the Messiah. So David looks to God's promises, and then in verse 8, responds once more with praise, with worship. I will sing praise to your name forever. David committed to praising the Lord because His promises are sure. I don't know if you've ever spent any time on a boat, but I feel like there are two kinds of people in the world. Those that don't mind being on a boat or even enjoy being on a boat, and those that don't, right? Uh, Maybe you're in one of those two categories. Maybe you know or don't know which one it is. Generally speaking, I tend to be in the category of, yeah, I enjoy being on a boat, getting out on the water, and I suppose it depends a little bit on the size of the boat. That makes a big difference in how it feels in the water and so forth. The biggest boat I'd ever had the opportunity to be on was a, uh, a, a big, um, oh, what do they call it, things that carry cars? Uh, a ferry, big ferry. Uh, that went from France down to the island of Corsica in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Largest boat I've ever been on is what I would imagine be about the size of a, um, when you go on a cruise, you know, cruise line or something like that. It was just massive. It's huge. And so it had, I don't know, like six levels that you would drive cars into, which that in itself was really interesting to see. And so you drive your car in and park it, and there's long lines of cars, 
And then you go up to another, had like six or ten levels above that that were all for passengers, and they had rooms you could sleep in, all this stuff. They had a big cafe area. In fact, I think they had one of those on each floor. Uh, and so uh, our team, we were on a mission trip. Our team landed in the cafe area, and we kind of sat down and packed our stuff and got ready for our journey. And uh, some of the kids in the group decided it'd be a great idea to order some food, and so they went over to the cafe and got all sorts of, they actually run by an Italian company, so all sorts of delicious Italian foods and cappuccinos, all these wonderful things. So they're ordering all this food and beginning to fill up, and we ship off <clears throat> onto the water of the Mediterranean Sea. And, you know, you think of the Mediterranean Sea, it's not that big, right? It's smaller than an ocean. It's still quite large, in fact. And even on a sea that large, very large waves can develop. And so we get out on this big boat, and we're all kind of thinking, well, this thing is so huge, and it's just the Mediterranean Sea. It's really not going to be all of that upsetting, you know? This is a smooth ride to the island of Corsica. Not so. And so we get out there on the water, and the boat is just heaving up and down and up and down and side to side, you know, and you're kind of, you've got to hold the rail as you walk through hallways and things like this, and uh, it didn't take long on our sea journey for uh, m- most of the teens in the group uh, to begin feeling seasick. And so the first thing it says, okay, we'll get out of the cafe, get up to the top level, get some fresh air, be able to see out and see the water, and that might help you a little bit. It helped a few of them, but not all of them. And so uh, sure enough, well, you know the rest of the story. So they didn't, uh, <clears throat> they got seasick. We'll leave it at that. They experienced the, uh, the challenges of even being on a big boat on the water and how that can make you not feel well. And so it was interesting when we finally arrived at the island and were able to get off the boat and back on solid, not moving ground, how thankful our team was to be on solid ground. I think one of the teens even got down and actually kissed the ground. We're like, okay, wipe your mouth. I mean, that's just disgusting. Uh, But they were just thankful to be back on ground that wasn't moving underneath them any longer. We don't like that feeling of being unsettled or unstable. Maybe you've been in an earthquake or in a scenario like that. We want to have solid footing. And this is what God's promises become for us when we go through the turmoil and storms of life. They're unchanging. They're sure. They're steadfast. They're solid ground for us to lean on. Rock solid truth no matter what we face. They never fail. As we think of the promises David looked to, they're hopeful to us as well. Our promised inheritance. We who have trusted in Christ are told that we have an inheritance undefiled and reserved in heaven for us, kept by the power of God. It does not fade away and it's incorruptible. And so no matter what we face, no matter what kind of loss we experience, we set our hope on our true inheritance in Christ. David thought of the promises of the Messiah, which are helpful for us as well, that indeed He is coming again. There will be a day when we hear the trumpet sound and are called into His presence forevermore. And He will put down all evil. And He will set up His kingdom. And He will reign forevermore. So friends, we cling to these promises as we face the waves of turmoil in life because God's promises are rock solid. 
They're true because He is truth. These are the two characteristics that David turned to when he was looking to God. God's steadfast love, His faithful, committed love, love that is unchanging. He will follow through on His promises. And the other truth was God's faithfulness. He is exactly as He says He is, and He never changes. And so we can trust His promises. We can lean on His Word. And as David responds, so too should we with worship. I will praise you, Lord, for your promises are sure. This is actually what worship is. We see something about God. We see His glory or His promises or His character or His actions, and we just just respond. That's worship. We praise Him for who He is and what He's done. It's not a feeling. It's not based on what's going on in my life or my circumstances or if I like this or don't like this. No, worship is about God. It looks to His promises and it says, You, Lord, are worthy to be praised. And so, friend, if you're in a place where you feel far from God or your heart is overwhelmed, worship is part of that solution of looking to the rock that is higher than you. Remember what He's like and praise Him regardless of how you feel. This is true in our personal worship. Personal worship is when we draw near to God and spend time with Him, often opening the words and and reading about Him. So many times we we come to this book just just looking for instructions for my day or answers or a different way to live. But the reason God gave us this book is to reveal His glory to us. And so when you open it, make it a time of worship to humbly come before the words of Scripture and to think through, what is God really like? What has He done? And as you read something that reminds you what His glory is and His promises are, to just pause and worship. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. It's true in my life. And it may be that reflecting on that truth leads to something you need to do differently that day. That's, that's good. But don't move past that time of worship. To come before Him regularly in prayer and in praise and in song and in reading, to worship Him. It's ought to be true in our families as well, to speak often of our God and what He's like. That, uh, that in our homes there would be a tone of awe and reverence for God who is glorious and has given us these precious promises. Family worship is not just family devotions. It may be that you choose to do that from time to time. That's great, but worship is the tone of our hearts towards God. We live in this state of awe and praise and marveling at His goodness to us. I wonder if that's the tone of your home. And then in corporate worship, thanks for being here today. You're not here for me. We're here because our God is worthy of worship. We sing because He deserves our praise. And the very act of worship is the right response to His glory and His promises and His attributes. And so often it happens to be exactly what we need to lift our eyes off of our trouble and to look to the rock that is higher than us and to remember, oh yes, He is near. He is safe. His promises are sure. I'm okay. (laughs) 
I have a God who is my rock. So friends, look to Him today. Maybe the phrase David uses here in Psalm 61 would be helpful to you this week. Lead me to the rock. Maybe that's a prayer you can take with you this week as you face your trouble, as you face your challenge to turn to the Lord in that moment to say, Lord, lead me to the rock. And I encourage you to have in your minds as you pray that, whether or not David did, to have the Lord Jesus in your minds as you pray that to God. Lord, lead me to the rock. Lead me to Jesus. And as you pray that to the Lord, maybe reminders of who you are in Christ could come to mind. That in Jesus, you are loved. See, the cross is a picture of God's love that Jesus took God's wrath in your place. Lord, lead me to the rock. And maybe in that moment you remember that in Jesus you are forgiven. Your sins have been cleansed by His blood. Lord, lead me to the rock. And as you think of Jesus, you remember that you're redeemed. You're purchased out of your enslavement to sin so that now you can serve the Lord. Maybe you remember that you're at peace with God in Jesus. Maybe you remember that you have a new family of God's children in Jesus. Maybe you remember that in Him you're kept secure forevermore by His power. Maybe you remember that you are accepted in His presence, that closest place with God, the Holy of Holies, because Jesus has torn open the veil through His flesh and by His blood purchased your acceptance before God so that you may cry out to Him boldly in your time of need. Maybe as you look to the rock, as you look to Jesus, you remember your eternal inheritance in Him. Lord, lead me to the rock. Help me to remember what you have done for me in Christ. When your heart is overwhelmed, look to the rock that is higher than you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that in our time of trouble, we can look to him. There may be some here today that face the trouble of their own sin, weighed down by the guilt of their actions, and knowing in their hearts they are not right with you. Oh, may they look to the rock today and find that Jesus has paid for their sins, risen from the grave, and that if they'll trust in Him today, they can have salvation, be lifted out of death in their sins, and given life in Christ. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, help us to keep looking to our rock, to trust in Him. May we see our lives through the lens of the gospel that reminds us you you have loved us perfectly and we can trust you through the storms of life. Lead us to the rock. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I don't know what people here today are facing, Father, but you do and so I pray even now that you would help them. Those whose hearts are overwhelmed, lift their eyes even to you right now. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.